This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest Liverpool Blood Red podcast. I'm Connor Dunn, and I'll be your host today for the first time during lockdown, back in the hot seat since Guy Clark is away. I am joined by full-time Liverpool correspondent, both home and away, mostly at home nowadays, Paul Gorst. How are you, Paul? You're on mute, Paul. It's not a good start. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as you say, normally at home these days, but I wasn't today. It was uh, only about 10 minutes ago when I got the nod to get on the pod. So um, here we are, a little change of scenery, seeing as we're going to be stuck in here for the foreseeable, trying to turn my spare room into an office. So we're midway through it, give it a little bit of a go today and see how we go. Good work. And I'm also joined by Dan Kay. Dan, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks, Connor. Um, weather's not great and the general... News isn't great either, but uh, we're all looking forward to Liverpool getting back into action at the weekend and hopefully getting back to winning ways after that shocker at Villa Park last weekend. Certainly so. At least one thing to look forward to in the midst of Liverpool lockdown. Hey, but that's uh, for news to deal with and not sport because we are full of Liverpool FC content and there's plenty to discuss, including internationals, few Liverpool player bits, Project Big Picture, PPV and low knees and maybe a bit of FSG five-year anniversary which is coming up at the end of this week but we'll start as it's international break with a bit of news around the internationals and um, Jordan Henderson obviously came back played for England last night Shakiri was back in action for Switzerland um, Thiago also posted a selfie of a couple of pictures of himself on social media showing him walking around Liverpool he's out of quarantine uh, Mane is expected to follow out of quarantine this week and it's looking a bit brighter for the Reds isn't it Gorsi? It is yeah um, it was interesting to see Thiago wasn't it posting the um, I mean, he didn't post any kind of um, back fit and healthy again kind of thing. It was just him walking down Seal Street, um, which is anyone who, who knows Liverpool City Centre will know is a hotspot for somewhere to wet your whistle. But um, the fact that he's out and about and roaming the streets of Liverpool suggests that he's no longer in isolation, so will be fit for the Merseyside derby, which I think is a massive boost for Liverpool at, the, at this this particular period. Um, which Liverpool got a little bit, well, they had a little bit of an injury crisis, didn't they? Which was kind of swept under the carpet a little bit when you look at who wasn't available for, for Aston Villa, Jordan Henderson, Thiago, Alisson, Mane, you know, four really key players for Liverpool. Okay, Thiago's only played 45 minutes, but, um, you know, he, he's going to be a massive player for Liverpool, isn't he? So good to hear that pretty much most of them are on the mend. We're still a little bit in the dark about Alisson, and we um, we'll hopefully find out something a little on him later this week. But, um, Seems like the international break has kind of come at a good time for Liverpool as far as injuries go. John Henderson was in action for England, wasn't he, against Belgium? I think Southgate and Klopp had a bit of a, an agreement about that to get him minutes. Um, Trent Alexander-Arnold also played. So, um, looking quite good on, on the injury front for Liverpool at the moment with a, a massive game coming up on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, definitely. Um, just on Henderson there, Dan, really. Oh, I, I'll, I'll say a note about Alison Furter because I don't know if anybody spotted it. He posted a picture of himself on Saturday evening um, on Instagram. It's him sitting in his car. I think he has, a, if I'm right, a foreign car. So it means he's sitting in the driver's seat and there's no strapping on it either of his shoulders. And I looked at it and I thought, mm, looks okay. Obviously not going to be back <laughs> for Everton, but um, I was hopeful. But anyway, just a bit, a bit about the positivity. Obviously, Henderson won that penalty for England last night, played 66 minutes, seems to be playing back into fitness another England game to come obviously and just seems to be that Klopp and Southgate have worked out a good plan for Henderson and as of course he said it's come at the right time. Yeah I think it's it's quite a rarity often we kind of feel probably managers as well as as well as fans that international breaks get in the way sometimes and you know don't help on the injury front whereas in, in actual facts having this training period and 
three games as it was because there was a friendly game on against Wales on Thursday, wasn't there? And, and obviously another Nations League game against Denmark on, we- uh, on Wednesday. It's actually given Henderson the chance to get some minutes under his belt. Chance to a mate yesterday morning was saying, oh, Henderson won't play tonight, will he? And I was like, well, I'd be surprised if he doesn't feature at least a bit tonight or on Wednesday because Klopp will want him to get minutes in his legs. Um, I only saw bits and bobs of the games, but but by all accounts, he, you know, he did reasonably well, won a penalty, which caused a bit of controversy with Roy Keane, as you might have seen on the Echo website earlier on. But uh, he's he's such an important figure for Liverpool, isn't he? I think it's fair to say that you know, no matter what, how things went at Villa Park last week, if he'd been on the pitch, I don't think it would have been 7-2 because just that kind of the the authority he has over the team, the way, the way he marshals his troops... Liverpool, Liverpool have missed. Liverpool certainly missed him on that occasion, and you know there's no better game for him to come back into, and probably no game Liverpool need him more in than a Merseyside derby. Particularly if, as we would we would hope, Thiago might be fit and gets to start alongside him. Bit of a baptism of fire for him to come into a derby like that. But if he's got someone like Henderson alongside him, that hopefully would give that little bit of reassurance and hopefully get Liverpool back on track. Yeah, definitely. I know we're obviously a week away and the game's not until Saturday and we'll discuss this in more depth on, on Friday. But how are you feeling about the derby right now, Gorsty? It's a, it's, a, it's a strange one. I think it's almost like the perfect storm for Liverpool coming off a 7-2 high and the worst defeat for 50 years or whatever it was. Everton arriving high, four straight wins, top of the league. Brand new impetus, a world-class manager, new players who seem to be gelling in perfectly, um, and they're going to the home, going to go to some park, aren't they? I think the only thing missing from an Everton point of view is, would be the, the bare pit of forty thousand fans in there. So it's a difficult one for Liverpool. It's a really tricky one. They haven't lost a, a Merseyside by the time Saturday morning comes around. It'll be ten years to the day since he last lost the Merseyside derby. Um, that could kind of become a, a bit of a, a subplot and a bit of an issue. So Liverpool are just going to have to show why the champions are going to have to show up and pull up the bootstraps and really go there. And and I think Danny Murphy used the phrase wounded animal, didn't he? And I think that is that sums it up quite nicely, actually. I think this Liverpool team, if they've got something about them, which you know they have, you know, the mentality monsters and all that, the Ian Klopp is always keen to, to espouse. I think they're going to have to go there and say, right, lads, you know, we're still a top team. We're still the top dogs in the city. Um, and go out there and put in a, a huge performance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, unfortunately for fans, in a lovely segue, as everybody knows I love to do when I host, fans are going to be able to watch the game on TV because it's not behind a paywall. But one of the big news over the weekend was pay-per-view that is being brought in. And I'll come to you on this, Dan, because I don't know if people listen to this. I've read Dan's piece from Saturday, but he wrote a very, very hard-hitting and well-poignant comment piece about pay-per-view. And I'd just like you to share your views on it, really. Well, it's, um, you know, it's another of these things, unfortunately, that makes modern modern football supporters feel that they're customers rather than supporters. Obviously, we all know football's going through a very, very difficult, unprecedented period because of the pandemic, of, of which, unfortunately, it seems at the moment there is no end in sight. You know, quite rightly, when football restarted after... Uh, the lockdown in in June, and for the first four match days of this season, all the games were provided, all the games were televised, a handful on on free to air channels. The vast majority of them, it should be remembered, on already paid subscription channels. So a lot of fans were already having to pay 
something to see them. But I think it was it was the right thing to do. It was the fair thing to do. There is an argument to say that bearing in mind club spends, I think it was one point five billion in the recent transfer market, and also spent over two hundred million pounds on agents. There is a strong, you know, in my view, a strong case to say that that should have continued. But I, I could also see the argument on the other side that at some point, some kind of extra contribution was going to be needed because obviously so clubs are losing out on massive sums here. I, th- I think the figures per match day veer from £500,000 a game to £4 million a game for some of the bigger clubs, which obviously Liverpool fall into that category. Now, there's the spirit of Shankly, the Liverpool Supporters Union pointed out in their statements over the weekend, right from the start of their expectations and their discussions with the various bodies, they always kind of felt that <clears throat> some contribution was likely and in and on and in principle a lot of fans wouldn't necessarily be against that but when the news broke on friday that it's going to be 14 pounds 95 that really got a lot of people's back up and there's been a big backlash against it understandably so because it was dave kelly from the everton uh fans group blue union pointed out 14 15 pounds is pretty much exactly what food the, the the precise sum of food bank would give to one person in need at a time when people are worried about their jobs, their futures, their mortgages, how they're going to, how they're going to look after the kids. Football provides at the best of times, let alone during a pandemic, football provides a blessed relief from the stresses and strains of everyday life. And it just feels like fans are getting gouged again. You know, as I say, some kind of sum, you know, isn't necessarily unreasonable particularly if, say, a proportion of it went to clubs in the, in the Football League because they're not covered by... The, gov- the, the government have said they're going to financially support the teams in the three tiers of the National League, but not but not the Football League. And there is an expectation that Premier League clubs will do that. Now, if part of, you know, if it was, say, I don't know, seven, maybe £10 tops with 25 30% going to the Football League, I think some fans will get on board with that. But £14.95, £15 by any other name just feels like sheer greed. And that's why people are upset and angry. And you know, I think we can hear, expect to hear plenty more about it. I believe that um, some of the local food grant food bank groups, <clears throat> along with other food bank groups around the country, are in the process of launching a petition to get it to, 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 to for it to be rethought. I know that I've seen a couple of others sprung up over the weekend myself. And I, I just hope the clubs get their heads together, particularly. And this is obviously before, before this new stuff about, um, as I'm sure we're going to get onto, Connor, these proposals Liverpool, Man United are leaving for reworking the football system. And so the, this 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 already happened before that this this emerged on Sunday. If clubs want to be taken seriously and have credibility in these very scary and changing times we're living in, they've got to get real and get their heads out their backsides and realise that we're all living in the real world. We all need to pull together and stop being so greedy. Yeah, absolutely. I don't ever think it was a case that fans don't want to pay any money whatsoever because they would normally obviously go to stadiums and. The, the experience of a match day and paying for a ticket and going to the game is totally different to sitting in your front room on your own watching TV. And 14.95, Gorsty, too much, what would you say? Oh, far too much. I mean, I wouldn't even be... I'd, I'd be questioning if, if you want to pay a little fiver in there, which, which to, to most people is not an awful lot of money. I just think it's, it's just ramp, rampant creed, isn't it? And it's just, it doesn't really seem to... Doesn't really seem to have an end, you know. If, you see, you hear a lot of, you know, they were taken aback by the backlash or whatever. But I just wonder what what planet they're living on. It if they, if they are taken aback by it, because planning to charge people fifteen pound a game, um, 
at a time when, you know, like Tottenham, for instance, Tottenham will get to refund their fans for their season tickets, so, so they pay New for Castle that. Newcastle, yeah, and and they're still waiting on that refund, and and they're getting asked to pay fifteen pound to watch, you know, the Newcastle at home to you know Burnley or whoever it may be. I mean, it's just it's just ludicrous. I mean, it, you know, pay per view boxing that's that's been a model for for as long as I can remember. But it used to be a thing. It used to be, you know, Mike Tyson against you know Lennox Lewis, and they were they were prize fights that you'd see once or twice mm-hmm. a year. You can't be paying it to watch. I don't know. I mean, just any game really is just ludicrous when you think of how many games it across the season. And I get the clubs need to kind of look at other avenues to, to help themselves. And Liverpool, you know, this Liverpool podcast, Liverpool are losing three million pound per home game, and they need to kind of safeguard that in certain ways that they can. But I don't think asking the supporters to pay through the nose once again is is the way forward. There has to be a better way. Um, you hear a lot about optics these days. Uh, you know, kind of how things look and. Um, Arsenal on transfer deadline they spend the fifty million pound on Thomas Party and letting the fella who's played Gunnosaurus for nearly thirty years out the back door, you know, made redundant on the same staff day. as well. Yeah, after making fifty five redundancies yeah. and, and this isn't this isn't to to dig out to Arsenal, it's just the way the the whole of the Premier League seems to be run. It's like they're not you just blindly can't see how certain decisions look to the to, to the working man and, and the people who have essentially funded the you know, the lifeblood of the game for years and um it's that saying isn't a football without fans is nothing well turns out football without fans is fourteen ninety-five. It's just it's too much, you know, something has got to give and, and the book has to stop. And and I'd love for, for people to turn off and just say no, we're not paying it and no one tune in, it'd be great. But we all know what it means to people and, and some people will pay it, uh, which is their right and, and their prerogative of course, but at some point something's gotta give, it really has. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, it's interesting that you both kind of noted there that how Premier League clubs are run. And the other massive news from yesterday was this big project, that Project Big Action or whatever it's called, um, or Project Big Pictures, I say. So I've noted a few things down here that cause I didn't want to get anything wrong because there's a whole raft of changes being proposed by Rick Parry, who Liverpool fans will know is the Liverpool's former CEO. He's now the EFL chairman. So there's a, there's a huge range of changes which are actually being backed by Liverpool and backed by Man United. Parry apparently spoke to both clubs and they are backing these plans. So essentially, the Premier League is going to hand out under these plans if they were to put, be put forward a £250 million rescue package to the EFL, which we were talking about the government weren't going to do. But then in turn, the League Cup Community Shield would both be scrapped and pretty much all power will be controlled by the Premier League's big six. Um, the only way the League Cup would survive is if the uh, teams competing in Europe didn't have to compete in the League Cup, which would automatically devalue the League Cup. And I want to touch on that point in a minute, because I think the League Cup, and especially in the last few years, has become such a vehicle for big teams like Liverpool to showcase their young talent, provide their young talent with first team opportunities they're never, ever going to get. And I think that's a whole nother ball game there. But then, so the FA would get £100 million. So as well as, as a gift for this happening. But essentially what would happen is a one club, one vote principle, which we have now, which we've seen all through the pandemic, where every club gets the same vote and it's all worth the same amount. It would get scrapped. Um, Premier League, it would then be, have to go to a threshold of 14 votes to pass, which is still, you know, plenty. Um, but then actually the nine clubs who have been in the Premier League the longest would have the biggest say, um, which are the big six, so-called Everton, Southampton and West Ham. And then because the 
under the plans as well. It's so confusing, but the Premier League would shrink to 18 teams. Two would be relegated. Teams finishing 16th will go into championship playoffs. So in essence, it would mean that six teams needed to vote for something for it to go through, which would be the Premier League's big six. I just wanted to get your kind of thoughts on it all, Gorsi, and, and how you, what you thought of this. Because obviously, on the one hand, there's going to be these big payments to the FL and the FA and getting hen- the big the big clubs helping the smaller clubs through. But then on the other hand, it's just the big clubs massively taking control, and that is Liverpool included. Yeah, it's um, it's not it, it's a little bit more nuanced than the the idea to, to charge fans fourteen ninety five to watch a game. There, there's some things that are in there that are good and progressive and helpful. Um, particularly the, the payments to the EFL. Um, but then it's almost like the big clubs are looking to kind of profit from the chaos that, that, they currently, that the world currently finds itself in. I don't don't agree with, with that, that at all. I think if you're a, a member of the Premier League, you've earned that for a reason. You've, you've fought hard to come up through the Championship. Um, just because Liverpool or Manchester United have been in there longer doesn't mean that they should have a bigger say. Just because they've got more fans and they've got more money and bigger stadiums, I just think... I think that is very opportunistic of, of the situation that everyone seems to find themselves in, um, and I'm, I'm not not too sure that that's going to work. I think currently the way the way it does work with 14 teams having to kind of sign off on a big decision seems to be fine, doesn't it? Because you know we we apparently live in a democracy, so that would mean that maybe 11 um, out of the, the 20 should should kind of tip the balance but they've kind of got it at 14 which seems to me like a, like a nice nice middle ground um so the fact that it would be six teams of nine making all the decisions and ruling the roost doesn't really sit right with me because um teams are in there for a reason you know just because you've had the the, the misfortune of kind of being in the championship at this point means that you shouldn't get a save when you're 20 years down the line and you've been in the premier league for for eight of them or ten of them um doesn't really sit right with me, but there are some elements of project. What's it called? Project Big Picture. Project the latest, Picture, yeah. yeah. But there are some elements of that that I can kind of get on board with, certainly. But this idea that you know these nine clubs ruling the roost uh, isn't for me. Same for you, Dan. What was your kind of feeling on that news when it was all breaking yesterday? Because obviously <laughs> Liverpool themselves are massively behind these plans. Yeah, and by all accounts, Liverpool and Manchester United are the two leading clubs driving this and and when i first heard about it um you know it, it's i did feel slightly uneasy about it and and I'm, I'm still i don't really understand the full dynamics of it i've only read a couple of bits of bobs around it i think i think gorsi summed it up quite well i think there are some good elements to it and some more unpalatable elements to it i, I don't think it's i think most people would agree that football needs some kind of change football does need to look into the future even before the pandemic you know there were there were systematic problems within the game, fundamental problems within the game that need dealing with and addressing. And you know, and 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 they've only been exacerbated by obviously what we're living through at the moment, and and, and may well be for, for some time to come. I think the key element to it, and, and someone that's been very strong on this, and there's no one more acutely aware of of the damage that big money can do to football than the Guardian journalist David Conn, who has written extensively about this subject for years and years and years. And he's made the point that the, the the promise of I think it's twenty five percent of future TV receipts to to go back into the football league, that is that is historic, because because the in many ways the formation of the of the Premier League in nineteen ninety two, was was what kind of closed the door to to fo- when when the football league was launched in eighteen eighty eight I think, 
one of the fundamental principles of it was that, that money, such as it was then, would be shared throughout the game. And that remained in place until 1992 when that that was tied up. Obviously, we know there's been parachute payments and so on. So that certainly is is an encouraging positive element to it, the, the, the kind of thing that the, the big clubs should be doing. However, as Gorsley pointed out, it almost seems like it comes at a price. And the price is the big clubs who, you know, giving themselves a greater say and more power to call the shots. Some people are alluding to the fact that, you know, this, this, it might ultimately end up being one step closer to a super league, you know, a European super league, which has been kind of like the bogeyman, the elephant in the room for decades now. And it hasn't happened, but obviously we are living in changing times. And, um, you know, the, the, the inequality between the rich and the poor in the game, which obviously is mirrors in society, the Premier League has reflected that, I think, in, in the 20 to 30 years that it's been around. So anything that could be done to kind of try and mend that or at least take the edge off it should be welcomed. I, I think the important thing is this is an initial proposal. I would hope that there's enough common sense on all sides of the, of the picture to sit down and talk about it and discuss it. This doesn't have to be the, fi- you know, the, the final version of it. There are some good parts of it, but I think there are also a lot of uh, various other parts of it that people will take exception to and that will need more thought and 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 work going into it. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's it's something that could change football as we know it forever, but not in the immediate future. Um, Now all the big news is out of the way. Let's give Liverpool fans or Liverpool fans on social media at least exactly what they want. And let's talk about some transfers now. Not permanent transfers, but loans. The domestic transfer window is open until October the 16th. And there are a number of Liverpool players who could possibly leave this week, at least on loan. Harry Wilson being one of them, Paul Gorst. Um, He obviously hasn't been included in Liverpool Champions League squad. Um, He doesn't really want to be playing under-23s football until January, at least. What do you reckon for him? I think that there's only one option, and it's the one that Liverpool didn't want to take. Um, Liverpool were adamant, him and Marco Grewich, earlier in the summer, that the time for loans was over for those two. Um, it was time to either move on for, for permanent sums or, you know, we'll give you a go in the, in the team at some point and see how you get on. Now, obviously, Grewich, um, once Liverpool went out of the League Cup, that was probably a fit for Grewich and Wilson, really, until January at the earliest when the FA Cup restarts. Um didn't quite get the permanent move that they were after, so we went to Porto on the on the Tuesday, was it? The day after the, the transfer window, and it's looking likely yeah, that Monday, it's going it? to be the same. Yeah, yeah. So it's looking like it's going to be the same for Wilson. I mean, Burnley kind of stepped away from from their discussions after thinking that they wanted too much money for him. Um, but it, it it doesn't serve Harry Wilson any good sitting in the under twenty threes until January. He's going to be clearly several levels above that and. I think it suits everyone for him to, to look for a loan move. And the most recent update I had on that was Liverpool. We're going to speak to him when he when he gets back from Wales and, and see what the lay of the land is. But I, I don't see any other outcome than him finding a short-term home for this season, whether that be in the Championship again. Well, I suppose it'll have to be in the Championship again. I mean, if he's available to Championship clubs, then there's going to be plenty of takers because he's just come off a, yeah. a, a good season in the in the Premier League with Bournemouth and, and he's a Liverpool player, he's a Wales international, so um, he's going to have his pick of the bunch really and, and when you've got that many after, I mean, I can't really see any scenario where he stays put. Yeah, no, totally agree. Um, I think there's a few others as well, Dan. Um, 
thinking the likes of Ben Woodburn, Nat Phillips, um, Seth Vandenberg, Herbie Kane, Yasser Larucci, Liam Miller, all academy players could be obviously at different stages of their career, but could be a few departures this week. Yeah, and I think as Gorsley said, Liverpool are going to have to be kind of like quite pragmatic about things. You know, in a perfect world, I'm sure, like with, with Wilson, they would have liked to have moved them on permanently, but because of the current climate, that's not been possible. And sometimes you've got to be agile and, and flexible in your approach. If you don't get exactly the situation you want, then you've got to look at the next best option. And I think certainly for quite a few of the lads you mentioned there, if they can get themselves to somewhere where they're, they're at least going to play some regular football, that is going to do them more good than being stuck on the fringes of the Liverpool squad playing only the odd under-23 game here and there. We know because of the compressed nature of this season, Liverpool are going to need a, a slightly bigger squad than normal. But Klopp isn't going to want it to be too bloated. You know, it, it's you want extra options, but if if too many people are around kicking their heels, then that can become counterproductive. So, yeah, I, I think the key to, to this is is being adaptable and hopefully being able to find suitable compromises with with these players and with the clubs who are interested to get the best solution for for all parties. Yeah, definitely. There's a couple of obviously more interesting ones in that in that group set that I mentioned there, probably Gorsi. So Nat Phillips obviously flew back last year to come and play against Everton. He is a centre-back. He's playing in the Bundesliga last year, or the Bundesliga 2 last year. Um, Liverpool obviously could do with a senior fourth-year centre-back. He's got first-team experience, but probably one that's going to leave. And another one I'd like to talk about, probably Seth Vandenberg, only 20, um, played against Tranmere and played well in the EFL Cup. Um, I know that some EFL teams were there to watch him. And then LaRucci as well. He's another one who Liverpool tried to sign a, a contract extension with but he turned it down because he wanted to move, but hasn't got a permanent move away. So what's going to happen there? Larucci is an interesting one. I, th- I thought he, he would have been long gone at this point because um, the news came out quite early on that he was looking to leave and, and he was looking to try and break into the into a first team somewhere. And we, we knew that... Back Leeds in July, wasn't it, I think? In... Yeah, yeah. It was a while ago. And, and I think Leeds were interested at the time. And then his name was obviously brought up when Liverpool were looking at Jamal Lewis at Norwich. Um, so it's interesting that he's still... On the books, um, he's out of contract, isn't he? So, um, the pool and in a bit of a bit of a tricky situation with him. It might just be a case of him leaving on loan and then his contract's up and he uh, he, he departs on a, on a free transfer. Um, and then you mentioned Matt Phillips. There was talk of Bristol City, was it earlier in in the window? I mean, at a time when Liverpool don't have too many centre backs, he's a little bit older than than Reece Williams, who I think. Surprised everyone with with his couple of games in the, the League Cup. He's a little bit older than Vandenberg. Um, Billy Cometto is obviously someone they've got massive hopes for, but uh, Phillips seems to be a little bit more experienced than any of those. So I wonder, would he be too much of a, of a you know, will he be worth keeping around just to, you know as a fourth choice centre back? And obviously that might not necessarily suit the player, but. Um, he he might be neither. We know that Fabinho is is an option at centre back if absolutely neither. But um, I just wonder whether whether Nat Phillips could could still be an option at Liverpool. I mean, I might be wrong, but um, there's not too many centre backs floating around at Liverpool at the moment. Yeah, certainly a couple to keep our eye on this week as we go forward. Anyway, and we obviously have all the updates on the Echo website before Friday's Blood Red podcast before Everton. Um, one thing I want to touch on before we go as well, and again, another thing coming up on Friday, but such is the international break. It is FSG's anniversary. Um, been at the club 10 years in on Friday. 
Um, just before we go, I just wanted to ask you both what you think FSG's best moment has been at Liverpool so far. I'll start with you, Dan. Put that on your toes. <laughs> <clears throat> well, in terms of best moments, I mean, it's hard to look past, you know, breaking that ceiling, ending that 30-year wait for the Holy Grail of another league title. It's been three and a half years of, you know, of almost like a dream. Certainly, if, you know, when you think of some of the things we went through as fans over the last 20, 30 years. For me personally, though, if I was asked the one thing that maybe I'm not quite your question, but I'm going to slightly, slightly tweak it. Uh, yeah. me, the most Free reign. <laughs> for me, the most important thing they've done, even more than bringing Jurgen Klopp to Anfield, was keeping us at Anfield, keeping us on that same path. That same patch of turf. <clears throat> I've, I've said this for a long time. If, if that was all they ever did, to me, they would have my eternal gratitude because it's more than just bricks and mortar that place. It wouldn't have been the same at Stanley Park or Speak or wherever else. Klopp, the trophies, the goals, the memories are, are fantastic and, I'm, I'm, and, and I've loved every minute of it. But for me, the best thing they've done is keep us at Anfield. Yeah, fair enough. I think if I was to chip in there, I would say probably the best thing they did is kind of on the same line is actually building the main stand. I just think it was a total game changer. Yeah. Linking back, obviously, to keeping it ample, but building that main stand probably changed everything for everyone at the club. It just made Liverpool bigger. It made Liverpool, you know, more fans in the ground, just a bigger standing. It's, it's just, it was such an investment and such a, a massive moment, I think, getting that completed. And obviously, there's still more work to be done at Anfield, but it's just such a huge first step almost to getting where we are today. But as I'm the host, I won't delve too much into it and I'll, I'll let you have a go, Gorsi. Um Well, I mean, it, it's difficult to, to say uh, the best thing of FSG have done is win the Champions League or win the Premier League because there are so many various factors involved in that and it's a sport and triumph. So I think what I'm going to go for is the, the fact that they, they were able to lure Jürgen Klopp to Anfield because they were obviously... The sporting, the sporting issues, there are a lot more, you know, factors that, that they're not able to influence. But I think going out there and, and seeing that Jürgen Klopp was available and uh, Mike Gordon speaking to Klopp's agents and then Ian Air speaking to Klopp's agents and then setting up the meeting in New York, they um, were aggressive with the pursuits of a top manager who has been the catalyst for what we've been able to witness over the last five years. So um, I think the infrastructure is important. Obviously, building the Anfield Road, they've got plans in, in place for that and the main stand and the new tra uh, training ground, the Kirby, um, you know, that has put, you know, tangible value onto the bottom line of the club because of, you know, its extensions of buildings and so on. But I think just for um, what they were able to do is just to bring Jürgen Klopp to Liverpool. I'd, I'd probably hang, hang their hat on, on that one. Yeah, fair enough. Well, expect plenty of chatter about FSG this week and a, a, probably a couple of special podcasts coming out around them as well, I imagine. Um, but that's pretty much all from us this week, to be honest with you. I hope you've enjoyed this higgledy-piggledy, big news, everything all thrown into one international podcast. We'll be back on Friday when the football, Premier League football at least, returns and it's the big one against Everton. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.